If you would take your Bibles and open to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12 will be our text this morning. We're going to be in verses 1 through 24. We will leave verse 25 for next Lord's Day. Acts chapter 12, verses 1 to 24. And when you arrive there, because this is the word of God, you are the people of God on the Lord's Day, if you are able, would you please stand? Luke wrote, as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit, these words. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. And when they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them. Of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting the voice of a God, not of a man. 
immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. The grass withers. The flowers consistently fade, don't they? But the word of our God remains forever. You may be seated. If you've been with us, already in the book of Acts, we have observed the consistent growth of the church, which of course is always connected to the consistent spread of the word of God. What began in Acts chapter 1 as a group of approximately 120 Jewish believers in Jesus had grown to include around 3,000 by Acts chapter 2 verse 41. 3,000 souls, we are told, in Acts chapter 2 came to know the Lord Jesus Christ and were added to the church. By Acts chapter 4, verse 4, Luke informs us that the church had grown to include around 5,000 men, which would have been approximately 15,000 or so men, women, and children, perhaps even more. This increase took place as the church faithfully proclaimed the word about Christ by the power of the Spirit of Christ. This is really the story of the book of Acts. On the other hand... As Sinclair Ferguson has commented, where the kingdom of God advances, there is a corresponding reaction of opposition. To give a few examples, Peter and John were arrested back in Acts chapter 4 for proclaiming Christ, and they were warned to stop preaching Christ. Of course, their response was, we can't help but speak about the things we have seen and heard. And then they were released. They continued proclaiming Christ, and the Jewish leaders arrested all the apostles in Acts chapter 5 for boldly sharing Christ. And then, of course, after beating them, they released them again, offering them an additional warning to stop sharing the message of Christ. This reaches a kind of climax in Acts chapter 7, where Luke recounted the ministry and martyrdom of Stephen, one of the first deacons in the church of Jerusalem. And Stephen's death served to begin a broader persecution against the church of Christ. So don't miss this. Throughout the book of Acts, as the kingdom advances, as the church grows, as the word spreads, there is a corresponding reaction of opposition. In fact, this opposition is testimony to the work of God. The early Christians aren't recorded in this case as questioning whether God, in fact, was at work. In fact, there are times in the book of Acts where the early Christians took heart and comfort by the reality that they were exposed to and experiencing opposition. Indeed, God must be at work. Because there is a corresponding opposition to the spread of the word of God. Yet still, Luke demonstrates for us that while opposition to Christ's kingdom will characterize life throughout this age, nothing can hinder the reign of King Jesus. Nothing. The book of Acts began here, Christ appearing to his disciples, and then not long after that initial bit of conversation, he is taken up into heaven where he takes his seat at the right hand of the Father, reigning over heaven and earth as the risen and ascended King of kings and Lord of lords. And so the book of Acts demonstrates time and time again, in spite of opposition, and in fact, often through opposition, Christ continues to reign. And this reign is extending beyond Jerusalem through Judea in all of Samaria and then, of course, to the ends of the earth. This pattern and this message, this essential message of the book of Acts, continues in Acts chapter 12. In our text, opposition to Christ takes the form of a particular leader. 
He's actually called a king in Acts chapter 12. This king is known as Herod. Herod, by the way, is more like a title than it is a name. There are many Herods in the New Testament and even in the history of the church. The New Testament mentions a few of these. For example, it was Herod who in Matthew chapter 2 slaughtered many of the infants in and around Bethlehem who were two years of age and less upon hearing about the birth of Jesus, the alleged Messiah. A different Herod than the Herod in our text, but a Herod nonetheless. It was another Herod who had John the Baptist decapitated, beheaded, and before whom Jesus was evaluated and even mocked in Luke chapter 23. Another Herod. In Acts chapter 12, we find that Herod, this Herod, fiercely opposes Christ and the church. And so consistently, when you see the word Herod in the New Testament, you can expect opposition. You can also expect that through the opposition, Christ is reigning supreme. Well, we're going to walk through this text in four stages. If you're taking notes, you can jot these down, perhaps even just log them away in your mind. Four stages in the text. First, we're going to see Herod's defiance. Herod's defiance. Herod defies not just the church, and not just the message of the church. Ultimately, Herod defies Christ. He defies King Jesus, and we'll see where that gets him. Second, we will look together at the church's prayerful dependence. The church's prayerful dependence. In addition to Herod's defiance, we find that the church is prayerfully dependent on God. Third, third, we will find Peter's deliverance. Peter's deliverance. And then finally, after Herod's defiance, the church's prayerful deliverance, rather dependence, excuse me, the church's prayerful dependence, Peter's deliverance, fourth, we will discover Herod's demise. Herod's demise. Younger worshipers in the room, I've got a couple of things I want you to look for as we're working our way through the text. Parents, grandparents, just as a reminder, encourage the children who are in the room to engage In the sermon time, in the word of God. And here are a couple of ways you can do that. Younger worshipers, look for these two things. Number one, what was the church doing while Peter was in prison? The church was doing something. What was the church doing while Peter was in prison? Second, what happened to Herod in the end? What happened to Herod In the end, what becomes of this king who opposes Christ and opposes Christ's people? We need to get this. Now, I'll add something here. As you see what happens to Herod, I want you to notice what happens to the word of God. I'll give you a hint. It's the opposite. Something happens to Herod, but the opposite takes place concerning God's Word. Well, let's begin with our first primary point, Herod's defiance. Look down with me, if you would, at verses 1 through 4, and we'll read that again quickly. About that time, Herod, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. This is the first apostle to die as a martyr. He will be the first among many. Verse 3, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. I don't miss that detail. This was the days, these were the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending, again, notice the detail, after the Passover to bring him out to the people. Now, Herod's defiance takes two forms in our text. First of all, as we just mentioned and we just read, he takes the life of James, There are a series of Jameses in the New Testament. This is James, the brother of John, one of the sons of Zebedee. This is the James who in Mark's gospel, Jesus refers to as one of the sons of thunder. 
It's also the James. So in Luke 9, we understand why James got the nickname, Son of Thunder. Luke chapter 9, when the Samaritan village did not embrace Jesus but rejected him, this is the James who said, Lord, shall we call fire from heaven down to consume them? Right? This is the James who rather than calling fire from heaven upon his enemies, willingly dies now. He's been transformed by Christ Willingly gives up his life. And Herod shows defiance to Christ and defiance to the church by taking the life of this James. There, by the way, is another James in the text, verse 17. And that other James will feature prominently throughout the rest of the book of Acts. In particular, in Acts chapter 15, that James is the brother of Jesus. Who becomes, by the way, who was converted, this is, a, this is an aside, and free was converted after the resurrection. It's one thing to convince people who are not your family members that you're the Messiah. It's another thing altogether to convince your brother that you're the Messiah, that you're his savior. Give that a shot. Well, what convinces James? What convinces James? This is a sermon for another day. 1 Corinthians 15, perhaps, would be a great place to address this. James is convinced because he sees the risen Lord. The man he thought was maybe merely a brother has been raised from the dead. James becomes a leader in the church of Jerusalem. By the way, James also will give up his life. That James, James the brother of the Lord, will give up his life. We are told that he's thrust down by a Jewish mob, and killed as one of the early church leaders. But that's not the James in our text who dies. The James in our text who dies is one of the apostles, James, the brother of John, and one of the sons of Zebedee. Second, though, Herod's defiance against Christ and against the church, Herod's defiance is, is, uh, it takes rather the form of arresting Peter. So Herod sees that the execution of James pleases the Jewish crowds, They all applaud the execution of James, and so Herod continues to persecute the church, and one of the ways he's going to persecute the church is he's going to arrest Peter, perhaps still the leading spokesperson for the apostles at this time. Now, Herod's intention was to bring Peter before the crowds, likely for execution. The text is not explicit here, but I think it is implicit He's going to bring Peter before the crowds in a similar way that he probably brought James before the crowds. And by the way, the language that's used to refer to the death of James is likely a way of describing being beheaded. Killed him with the sword. Lopped off his head. Perhaps he intends to do the same to Peter Now, I want you to see something that the Spirit of God weaves through this story, okay? So this is, you're going to have to bear with me on this one, because these are the kinds of details we often miss. And I gave you a bit of a hint when we were walking through, we noticed things like this took place during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Why in the world is that detail there? And then again, when the Passover was completed, Herod intended to do this. Why in the world are these details present? Don't forget, we do not believe that there are any extraneous details in the biblical text. We may not always understand why they're there, but they're there with purpose and divine purpose. So notice what is included in in this text, as I just mentioned, Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover. Here's why I think these things are included. There are perhaps various reasons. Here is one of them. I think Luke is presenting the material in Acts chapter 12 as a kind of new exodus. I think he's presenting the material as a new kind of exodus. This is an exodus of God's people. Consider the following parallels with me. Consider these. When was the Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover instituted? When God called his people, Israel, out of Egypt. Okay, there's one parallel. Second parallel, the book of Genesis, which is right before what book? A little louder, please. Exodus. So the book of Genesis, which occurs right before the book of Exodus, concludes with a famine. So a famine precedes the Exodus. 
mention of a famine precedes the Exodus. Well, what is mentioned at the conclusion of Acts chapter 11 through the prophecy of Agabus? What's coming? A famine. A famine is coming. Three, another parallel. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, fiercely opposed God's people back in the book of Exodus. In Acts chapter 12, who is the Pharaoh? Herod. Herod, the king of Judea in this case, fiercely opposes God's people, oppressing God's people. Fourth, as God miraculously delivered the people of Israel out of Egyptian oppression, he miraculously delivers in this case Peter out of a Jerusalem jail and Herodian oppression. In fact, there are some details here that help us see this consistency. Luke tells us that this deliverance took place when? In the middle of the night. When, according to Exodus, did God rescue climactically the people of Israel from Egyptian slavery? In the middle of the night. These details are all lining up and pointing our attention back to the biblical text. And then I'll mention one more. When God rescued Israel out of Egypt, he commanded them to fasten their belts and put on their sandals. Exodus 12, 11. I want you to notice Acts chapter 12, verse 8. And the English Standard Version opts for something. I'm going to differ from it just a bit. And the angel said to him, dress yourself. That's the same verb that can be used for fasten on your belt. Fasten your belt and do what? Put on your sandals. Same instruction that God granted the people of Israel the night of the Exodus as he was going to be visiting the people of Egypt in judgment and rescuing the people of Israel. So what am I saying here? What I'm saying is that these and other parallels communicate that just as God rescued his people out of Egypt, so he continues to rescue his people out of the hands of those who oppose him. That's the point. And so early Christians who were reading this text understood, I think, Understood that as God rescued miraculously the people of Israel out of Egypt, so he was rescuing the church here in Acts chapter 12 out of the hands of oppression, and he will continue to rescue us. We can continue to trust him. Additionally, now notice this. If this parallel is accurate, of course I think it is. If I didn't think it was, I wouldn't say it, right? If this parallel is accurate, Luke shows us that God's people, again, are not fundamentally identified according to ethnicity or nationality. Now, we've already seen that. If you've been with us in Acts, you know this. We've already seen that in Acts chapter 10, God rescues Cornelius and his household and those who were gathered in his household through the ministry of the apostle Peter and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And what was so amazing about this was these were mere Gentiles. He's rescuing non-Jews. And this continues to happen in the church of Antioch in Acts chapter 11. This church that is exploding and bursting at the seams is exploding with conversions of Gentiles to Christianity. The church is not fundamentally Jewish. It includes believing Jews and believing Gentiles. And so if this is a kind of Additional exodus, God consistently communicates the same message. His people are identified not by ethnicity, but by creed, by confession, by faith, by allegiance to Jesus Christ. And what that means on the flip side, what that means on the flip side is you can be, who, who are the Egyptians in the text? Who's the Pharaoh? A Jewish leader. If the church is a kind of Israel in Christ in the text, who are the Egyptians? They're Jewish opponents and persecutors. Not all those from Israel are truly of Israel, Paul says in Romans, but rather those who place their faith in Jesus, the Messiah. So this demonstrates for us, of course, back to our primary point, Herod's defiance. Second, 
Second, and we'll go through some of these points quicker than others. Second, notice the church's prayerful dependence. As Herod is defying Christ in the church, the church is praying. Look with me at verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest or constant prayer for him was made to God by the church. Additionally, when Peter is released, he ends up going to the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where the church is gathered at the conclusion of verse 12, doing what? Praying. So earnest prayer is being made for Peter as he's in jail, and then Peter finds the church, a collection of members of the church, in Mary's house, in verse 12, gathered for prayer. The Christians were consistently praying, perhaps for a number of things, but we're led to believe one of the things they're praying for is the release of Peter, the protection of Peter, the deliverance of Peter. Now, the irony of prayer, we've seen this throughout the book of Acts, we'll continue to see this, the irony of prayer is that on the one hand, it can be performed by the weakest among us, can't it? It's, it's that activity through which we really do nothing and ask God to do everything. It's a request. A request that materializes out of a recognition of our own inability and our own dependence. And so on the other hand, though the weakest among us can do it and ought to do it, it is perhaps one of the most powerful activities we can accomplish together. The church knew that Peter's fate rested under the sovereign care of God. And so they prayed. <clears throat> they prayed. And technically, it isn't, it isn't that prayer itself is powerful. And I, know, I know the sentiment Prayer changes things or prayer is powerful and I get the sentiment and, and affirm so much of what is being said, I think. But it isn't properly that prayer is powerful. Rather, prayer is the means by which we call upon the all-powerful God. In a similar way, for example, faith itself is not powerful. It's faith's object that's powerful. It's placing our faith in Christ, the all-powerful Savior. Additionally, notice, I want you to notice what the early church didn't do as Peter was arrested. Here's what they did not do. They did not storm the jail with swords, clubs to rescue Peter by force. I mean, after all, they had grown to thousands. Why didn't they rally the troops? Go and attempt to rescue Peter from the grip of the oppressor named Herod, no, no, they knew. They knew that the eternal kingdom over which Christ reigned was a kingdom unlike any other kingdom. This kingdom advances not through military might. This kingdom advances through humble, dependent prayer. This kingdom advances through gospel proclamation. This kingdom advances through the willingness of members and citizens in this kingdom to suffer and even die for the name of Christ. In that sense, had Peter died in jail, his death itself would have been a demonstration of victory in Christ Jesus. So the church prayed and prayed constantly and prayed fervently. And then notice number three in the text. In addition to Herod's defiance and the church's prayerful dependence, we find Peter's deliverance. Peter's deliverance. So just a quick summary on the night before Herod intended to bring Peter before the Jewish crowd. We're told in verse seven that an angel, an angel appeared, stood next to him. And we're also told that light shone in the cell. The language Luke uses to describe the angel waking Peter up and telling Peter to get up is actually resurrection language. As I was looking at that earlier, earlier last week and working on translating this text, I, I was really taken by this. This is not uncommon, by the way, um, in the New Testament and especially in the book of Acts, but here as the angel comes, the angel comes to raise Peter. 
And then, and then the command comes from the angel, rise. I don't think this is incidental, nor is it accidental. I actually think that what's being communicated was Peter, Peter was as good as dead. He was as good as dead apart from God's intervention. And God had mercifully chosen through the prayers of God's people to act according to his will and rescue, deliver the apostle Peter out of the hands of Herod. And so it is the authority of Christ that begins to clearly eclipse the authority of Herod. It is the resurrected Christ that calls Peter to a kind of resurrected life in Christ. The angel led Peter through maximum security. Do you notice that in the text? I mean, it is just overwhelming. The security that's put in place because of Peter. I mean, Herod is no fool. He knows this is a movement that's growing. He also knows that Peter is at the center of this movement. And so he sets up chains and soldiers and even additional soldiers, sentries that are guarding entrances and gates a first guard and a second guard, and finally, even a closed and locked iron gate that led into the city. But that wasn't enough. And I love the language that's used, actually, as, as the angel is escorting Peter. Peter, of course, all the while thinks he's seeing a vision. And have a little mercy on the man. You probably would as well. Um, I, I'm... I'm more naturalistic than that. Uh, I'm ashamed to admit, I probably would have thought, oh, I've eaten some bad sausage or something. We can understand why Peter is thinking, this just is not the case. God's showing me something. But as he's being escorted, I love this. The ESV reads that the iron gate opens of its own accord, as if it had a will. God speaks even to the iron gate, and it opens. Tremendous. And then, when Peter is outside of the jail, he's standing, we're told, on a street. We don't know what street. There he realizes, the angel disappears. I would have wanted to have a conversation, I think, at that point. The Lord will not, will not allow it. He doesn't permit it. The angel disappears, and Peter comes to himself, the way the text reads. <laughs> he comes to himself. And he realizes that this was no vision after all. This actually took place. Truly, he had been rescued from Herod. So, what does he do? He heads to Mary's house. And Mary's house, by the way, is probably a place where they gathered frequently. He heads to Mary's house. This is, again, Mary, John Mark's mother. John Mark is going to feature prominently as well later the church is gathered for prayer. And again, this scene is just, it's tremendous. Knocks on the door, right? Here's Peter. And it would have sounded perhaps something like that. Knocks on the door or knocks on the gate. And we are told that Rhoda, a servant girl, comes to answer the door. Now, don't miss a couple of things. One, this is a slave. Two, She's named. She gets into a debate with others in the text, none of whom are named. She's named. What is happening in the church? These socioeconomic classes and divisions are just being turned on their heads. It is a slave girl who sees accurately in the text. The others don't. And even are willing to debate her. And she's willing to debate them. Quite dangerous in the ancient world for a slave to open his or her mouth. So she comes to the door, Rhoda. And there Peter stands, she doesn't see him, she hears him, hears his voice, and the text says she's overwhelmed with joy and leaves him standing there. Did you see that? 
And she runs back in where the gathering of people are praying and she doubtless begins to shout, Peter is standing at the gate. Peter is standing at the gate. And they say to her, you're insane. Now don't miss this. This is likely a prayer meeting during which time they were praying for Peter's release. And when God granted their request, they doubted it. You can't relate to this, I know. You only ever believe the Lord. It's similar, isn't it, to the the disciples when Jesus is raised from the dead and he appears, Matthew chapter 28, he appears to many and and, uh, when he's given this instruction at the climax of Matthew's gospel, um, they worshiped and then it says, and some doubted. Some are still doubting. This is a struggle. Don't think, please don't think that the ancients always ever believed in miracles. The ancients were a lot like us. People didn't rise from the dead and prisoners weren't miraculously set free. So like us, they doubted. But Rhoda insists. Now, while this is happening, this debate is taking place. We're not told how long this takes place. This debate is taking place. There Peter stands still knocking. You wonder how long. How long he had to stand there knocking. And I even wonder actually what was going through Peter's mind. None of the text doesn't tell us this. We know what we need to know in the text. But I do wonder if Peter began to then question, well, maybe this was a dream after all. What is going on now? So he stands there. Finally, they open the door and they were astonished that Peter stood there released miraculously from Herod's oppression. By the way, some of you will ask me this question if I don't address it. The text mentions his angel. Did you see that? Where is it? Acts 12. Somebody shout it out if you see it. Verse 15, thank you. So verse 15, they said to her, you are out of your mind, but she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. And some, of course, infer from this text that there are guardian angels and such. Uh, What do do you think? I don't know. I just don't know. Perhaps they're sarcastic. Perhaps, there was was common belief that there were angels assigned uh, for various tasks, and even perhaps to various people. Maybe, There are so many aspects of angelology that we just don't understand. And yet we're fascinated by it, I know. So my answer to you is I don't know. All right? I know that satisfies you. And you're pleased now to move on. But perhaps, perhaps they're sarcastic or perhaps, perhaps there were angels who were assigned in the minds of God's people. And after all, there was an angel who visited Peter in the jail and rescued Peter from jail. So they opened the gate. They were astonished. Verse 17, Peter motions to them with his hands to be silent. He describes to them how the Lord brought him out of the prison through the angel. And he says to them, tell these things to James. That's a different James. Remember, that's James, the brother of Jesus. And to the other brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. And by the way, It's the last time Luke mentions Peter in the book of Acts until chapter 15 at the Jerusalem Council and then not again. So Peter's story really concludes here. He fades, by the way, like all of us do, in light of Christ's glory. He goes to another place. Now, the point, the point is not that God always rescues us in the way we request if we ask in faith. He does sometimes. And when he does, we need to give him glory for it and praise him for it. And if we doubt when he does it and he did it, we ought to repent and ask him to help our unbelief. But I want you to notice, while God delivered Peter from death, he delivered James the brother of John, through death. The chapter began with a different kind of deliverance. You remember this? Look back. Acts 12, verse 2, Herod killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. 
Moreover, it would be about two decades later. And the Apostle Peter would die as a martyr under Nero in Rome, probably being crucified, perhaps even upside down. Some traditions testify. Deliverance can take the form of temporary release and reprieve. However, it can also take the form of endurance and faithfulness amid afflictions. Don't miss that, church. God delivered Peter, but he also delivered James. And he delivered both of them, or each of them, in different ways. I recently got on an elevator. I was praying with Russ Ammons this morning, Russ and Danny, and Russ, you prayed this. You prayed this, brother. I had to leave early. Confession. And I wasn't able to tell him this. You prayed this. I recently got onto an elevator with a couple of women at a, at a conference, and um, Christian conference. And on their t-shirts, I, I've told you this, I read t-shirts. I've told you this. Uh, on the t-shirt was printed Daniel 3.18. And the verse records the words of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who answered, King Nebuchadnezzar. As he was about to throw them into the fiery furnace, this is one of those popular Sunday school stories. One I, but one I didn't know until I was about 18. And so he's about to throw these three Hebrew young people into the fiery furnace, kill them. And here's what they said beginning in Daniel 3.17. And part of this is printed on the shirts of these two women. Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And then they say, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. In some way. Verse 18, but if not, as if to imply, but if he doesn't do it in the way we ask him to, or in the way we think he ought to. Let it be known to you, king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. In other words, our God is king over all, even king over you, Nebuchadnezzar. He can choose to deliver us out of your hand, but if he does not, we will still serve him. And as I spoke to these two women on the elevator, one shared with me that the husband of the other had just died. She just lost her husband. And this t-shirt, and the t-shirt read something like this, but even if not, we will serve him. Something like that. It was a summary. Even if he doesn't deliver in the way we call on him to deliver, in the way that we plead with him to deliver, even if not, we will serve him. This t-shirt was a testimony of this woman's trust in God even when God chose not to deliver in the way she asked God to deliver. Doubtless, she begged God, heal my husband. And God did, but not in the way she had requested. God delivered James, not from death, but through it. In our text, he delivered Peter, not through death, but from it. He chooses how to deliver according to his will, and his people respond in faith with a bit of doubting, if we're honest. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. My question to you this morning, and I do need to mention our last point, and I'll do that before we close. My question to you this morning is, do you trust this God? Do you trust him when times are good? And do you trust him when times are awful? Will you place your allegiance in the king of kings when he releases you from prison, as it were, and will you place your allegiance in the king of kings when he points you to martyrdom or tragic loss? 
We know, brothers and sisters, don't we, that we can trust the God who sends his son incarnate to live in our place, to die for our sins, to be raised from the dead on the third day, securing our eternal life and joy with him. We can trust this God. So trust him. And if you're here this morning and you've not placed your allegiance in King Jesus, you've not given your life and surrendered your all, the sum total of who you are to Christ, I would encourage you to do that. Repent of your sins. Repent of placing your trust in anything but Christ. And embrace him this morning in faith. And if that's where you are or you'd like to talk more about this, we would love to talk with you after service as you make your way out of one of these double doors and take a left. There will be an elder standing in that room out there called Crossroads who would love to come alongside of you and you alongside of us as we learn to place our trust all the more in Jesus because that is, after all, what it means to grow as a Christian. Trust him more. And love him more. Finally, Herod's demise. We can't miss this. I'm over, by the way. No one puts a time limit on me. I put a time limit on myself, by the way. But I do consistently undershoot on the time limit, overshoot on the sermon. You'll forgive me. Let me mention a couple more things here. Herod's demise. Luke tells us with a couple of examples that Herod continues to use his authority to abuse others and elevate himself. He does this with Tyre and Sidon. He does this with the soldiers who failed to keep Peter locked up. Now he's clothed in his ostentatious regal attire, right? Look at me. I am the king. That's the picture we receive in the text. can't keep Peter in prison, but by golly, I'm the king. And he sits on his throne and he delivers a speech before a crowd who after the speech responds with these words, the voice of a God and not of a man. Now, verse 23, immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give glory to God. And He was eaten by worms. By the way, you can't be brought lower than where worms are. The king who had elevated himself, King Jesus brought low. And he was eaten by worms and the text tells us that he breathed his last. So this great persecutor of the church is eliminated and the church the church must not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul as Jesus said and then notice the contrast verse 24 Herod is dead but the word of God is very much alive Luke records but the word of God increased and multiplied Herod's come and Herod's go Pharaoh's come and Pharaoh's go Government officials come, government officials go. Nations rise, nations fall. The word of God remains. It increases and it multiplies. And it multiplies, by the way, by the faithful and bold and prayerful proclamation of the word of God by the people of God. You are an instrument in the increase and the spread of the word of God. I'm going to finish with a quote. J.C. Ryle, the great Anglican bishop of Liverpool, said a number of amazing things. This is one of the things I've really enjoyed meditating on over the years. One of his quotes from a sermon he preached on the church He summarized essentially the unhindered spread of the word of God in the church. You can't stop the church because you can't stop the king and the Lord of the church. Here's what he said, and we'll close. Nothing can altogether overthrow and destroy the church. Its members may be persecuted, 
oppressed, imprisoned, beaten, beheaded, burned. But the true church is never altogether extinguished. It rises again from its afflictions. It lives on through fire and water. When crushed in one land, it springs up in another. The Pharaohs, the Herods, the Neros, the Bloody Marys have labored in vain to put down this church. They slay their thousands and then pass away and go to their own place. The true church outlives them all and sees them buried, each in his turn. The church is an anvil that has broken many a hammer in this world and will break many a hammer still. It is a bush which is often burning and yet it's not consumed. Let's pray together. Christ Jesus, we give you honor and praise and glory on account of the promises of your word. You are building your church and you're doing this through the spread and the increase of your word. We have the joy as your followers of boldly and prayerfully proclaiming your word to a world who is in desperate need of hearing it. Oh Christ, give us fresh confidence this morning that your rule could never be hindered or stopped by any temporary authority. You extend your kingdom through the death of your people and at times by choosing to rescue your people out of death. Grant us grace to trust you in all things and to leave this place as people eager to preach Christ, Christ crucified, Christ risen, Christ ascended, Christ reigning forever and ever. In your name we pray, amen.